Matthew nineteen thirteen through 30. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought him. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which one? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered, him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Anytime you take a, a verse of Scripture and, and look at it out of its context, there's a little bit of danger that you might think the author is saying something that he's really not saying. I mean, we have to do it all the time because we read small passages. We study smaller bits of, of Scripture. But it can be a little dangerous. We can take something away from the letter or the book that it was written in and come away with the idea that the author is saying something that he's actually not saying. Here is, there's lots of examples of this. Here's kind of a famous one. If you read Proverbs 29, 18, only the first part of the verse now, and only in the King James Version too, you'll read that it says something like this. In the King James, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that half of a verse is often used by a preacher, by some kind of leader, by a so-called prophet, to sort of coerce or encourage people to get behind some vision they have gotten, 
something that God has told me. And the, the reasoning goes something like this. You don't want to perish, do you? Well, the Bible says where there's no vision, people perish. I'm the one that has the vision. So you better get behind me or somehow you're going to perish. It looks like it says that. The problem is it's not at all what Solomon was saying. He was actually saying sort of the opposite. If you read all of the verse, especially in a different translation, um, Proverbs 29, 18 says something like this. When there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But the one who keeps the law, blessed is he. Here's what Solomon was saying. If you find yourself in a time where God is not speaking audibly to people, you know, like all the time, there's never been, there's been very, very few times, there's never been a time when it was like the norm for God to just be talking to people. It's always been very rare. And when God's not doing that, Solomon said, people tend to go a little nuts. People cast off the restraints of God's word and they start following stuff that's not really God's prophetic vision. Fake stuff, or they just think, they they mistake God's silence for a lack of concern and they do their own thing. But look at the solution. The solution is not find somebody else to listen to. The solution is the blessed person is the one who keeps the law, which for Solomon is his way of saying the whole Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament of his day. The blessed person is the one who obeys what's already been written down. That's the blessed person. Well, that's just one example of how really easy it is, especially if if you're looking for it, to take a a part of Scripture out of its context and make it seem like it's saying something it's not saying. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because we're going to study a passage today, kind of a long passage for Matthew. This is one of the longer chunks we have looked at at the same, looked at at the same time. And, and really, it's two separate stories and then a conversation that's about those stories. It really could be three sermons. And here's why I want to keep these two stories together. The stories are Jesus calling the little children, welcoming them to himself. And then the rich young ruler who refuses to give away all he, all he owns. Here's why I want to keep those together, because those two stories go together. Here's how we know this. Each of those stories are told in three Gospels. are told Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're always told together in this order with nothing in between. Because these two stories, they don't seem maybe like they they go together, little kids and a rich young ruler, but they go together to make one coherent sort of point. They work together to teach the same lesson. That's why I think it's important to tell them like the gospel writers did, to keep them together together. Because if not, we can, they can wind up saying something that they don't really say. Let's see if we can figure out that main point that Matthew wants us to know by sharing these two stories 
We'll start with the first story of Jesus welcoming little children, verses 13, 14, and 15. Some little children are brought to Jesus, presumably by their parents. We're not told that. And the parents wanted Jesus to, to, put, to lay his hands, to bless these children, lay his hands on them and, and pray for them. And as the disciples normally did when people wanted to, to come to Jesus, they did what they usually did, which is try to keep them away. They try to get rid of the kids. And here's, here's why. In first century Jewish culture, uh, children were, were basically statusless. Like they didn't matter to society. Don't, don't hear me wrong. It's not that people didn't like kids or that their mommies and daddies didn't love them. It's just to, to first century Jewish society, like they, they, they didn't have any status, any pull. What they thought didn't matter. Um, it's weird for us to think about here, but like nobody... Nobody built their entire life's schedule around their kids' activities, right? Which is, which is what we do. Um, and so the disciples, thinking they're doing Jesus a favor, their, their mindset's like this. There's only so many hours in a day. Jesus can only meet with so many people. Let's not waste any time on the statusless people. That's why the people they're always trying to keep away from Jesus are little kids and lepers you know, people with no status. Their idea is Jesus should be influencing the influencers. Let's make his time really count. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've got, let the children come to me. And here is his point. He's, he's teaching publicly something he's already taught the disciples privately, though apparently they didn't grasp it very well. Back in chapter 18, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like kid, like these children. And it is a story about, it's about status. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's using the children as an object lesson. He's already taught the people who get into heaven are not the most impressive people on earth. They're the people who grasp that their status before God is similar to the status of these little children to the rest of our society. I have to grasp, I'm needy, I'm bankrupt before God. I don't have any status that would make him think of me as impressive. That's who gets in. And Jesus welcomes these little children to let people see, I have time for, I love, I care for the marginalized, the powerless. The people who don't matter in this world matter to me. And that's a, that's a good thing. Because think of what kind of status would, would you have to have for the God of the universe to go, oh man, look at that guy. Now that's an impressive gal right there. Like, are you going to stand before God based on your own like, status someday and hope to impress the God of the universe? No. We just have to, we're all, every human being who's not named Jesus of Nazareth, who has ever been born, their status is powerless and penniless before God. Just many of us don't realize it. The ones who get in are the ones who realize, I better be saved from my position by a God who can save. That's what, that's what the point 
of Jesus calling little kids to himself is. And the reason we know that's the point, and the reason this story always goes with what is next, is because we're about to meet a guy who is the exact opposite of these statusless little children. Jesus welcomes the little children, the people with no pull and no position, and then we're going to see the exact opposite happen to a guy that's usually called the rich young ruler. We read about him in verses 16 through 22. He's never called the rich young ruler, but, but Matthew tells us he's rich and young. Luke tells us he's a ruler, which means he's a, the synagogue official. And this is a guy who checks all the boxes of status from a human perspective. He's, he's uh, you know, youth is on his side. He's got position, power, authority. He's wealthy. He's got pull people. He's, he's in the jet set. You know, this is, and, and by the way, in their way of thinking, God's favor was shown by giving people what this guy had. And we're also going to find out today he had one other thing going for him. He was apparently incredibly moral. He was a very good dude. In fact, if there was ever anybody we meet in the Gospels who would have deserved eternal life, if that were possible, this is the guy. But we're going to see he's not someone who has eternal life. So this is the guy, that this rich young mover and shaker. He approaches Jesus in verse 16 and he asks this question. He says, teacher, by the way, I'll stop right there. In the book of Matthew, Matthew's got like a little secret message for us if we pay attention when people talk to Jesus. Don't do it this morning because I want you to pay attention to what we're studying here. But sometime go through the book of Matthew and highlight every time somebody addresses Jesus using the word teacher. It's never a good interaction. It's never somebody who's redeemed. It's never someone who has eternal life. And I think this is Matthew's message to us. Yes, Jesus was a good teacher, the best ever. But if all Jesus is to you is a good moral teacher, you're in real trouble. He needs to be more than a teacher. He needs to be a savior. Regardless, this guy comes and respectfully addresses him, teacher, and he asks this, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? You hear what he's asking there? How good is good enough for me to go to heaven? What are the behavioral requirements? What are the boxes I have to make sure I have checked? Behaviorally, morally, how I treat other people. How good is good enough to go to heaven? Now, verse 17, Jesus' initial response can sound a little bit cryptic. Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Here's what I think Jesus wants this guy to hear. Buddy, you are asking the wrong question and you don't even know. You don't even know it. The guy says, tell me how good is good enough to go to heaven. 
What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good enough? And here's the bad news. There is only one who is good. And the obvious conclusion that's unspoken is what? There's only one who is good, and you ain't him. Right? How good do I have to be? Jesus says, well, there's only one who's good. And if it's not you, that means you're not good. But Jesus is going to humor him. He's going to play along. But if, if you want to enter eternal life based on your goodness, then just keep the commandments. And then he asks another interesting question. Well, which ones? I mean, that's my question. That's still his original question. How good is good enough? Jesus says, well, you're not good enough. But keep the commandments and you'll be good enough. He said, yeah. I already asked you which ones. What's the real answer to that question? How good would be good enough if you could be behaviorally deserving of eternal life? You'd have to keep all of the commandments perfectly all of the time. Jesus said eternal life is knowing him and God the Father, and to be with them, you'd have to be like them, which means sinless. This is why Jesus' half-brother James would later write this, James 2.10, for the one who obeys the whole law, and this is a hypothetical, if there was someone who could obey the whole law but would fail at just one point, they'd be guilty of breaking all of it. The law is a, is a, is a package deal. If you want to be good enough before God to pass his judgment based on your behavior, here's the bad news. You could keep the entire moral law of God for your whole life, mess up one time, and that's it. Because that's how holy and perfect and righteous God is. Here's what Jesus is going to demonstrate through the rich young ruler today. What Paul wrote for us in Romans 3.20. No one, Paul says, is declared righteous before God by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law of God is not to give you a checklist of things. If you do them well enough, you can get to heaven. According to, because nobody gets there that way. According to Romans 3.20, what is the law for? It's to show you you haven't been good enough. It's a very accurate mirror that shows we're not good enough. We need a savior. All right, so this guy, the rich young ruler, he has, he's come to Jesus. He's asked, tell me, uh, uh, what, how can I get to heaven? How can you be good enough? And Jesus says, well, you're not good enough. But if you want to be good enough, just keep all the commandments. Which ones? Jesus is going to play along. He's all right. I'll leave out the first four commandments that talk about how uh, we're supposed to uh, interact with God. That's the 10 commandments, one, two, three, and four. And Jesus is going to list off for him uh, commandments 5 through 10, which are all about how we deal with other people. And it's like Jesus says, all right, we'll start here. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. 
And then this one is a summary of that part of the law, the part of the law about how we deal with other people. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, we'll just start there. You do those, I'll let you in. Now, Matthew doesn't list this and Jesus doesn't say this so that you or I will think if we work hard enough on that list, we'll be okay before God. It's not what this is for. It's not what the law is for. Remember, Paul just told us the law is to let us know we haven't been good enough. Even if Jesus were meaning that, we would all be in real trouble. We all are in real trouble, save for one thing. So here's what Jesus says. He says, all right, you want to be good? Don't murder and don't commit adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus teach about those two? Just because you can honestly say, I've never killed a guy and I've never gone that far with someone I wasn't married to. Just because I can say I'm okay there does not mean I'm okay according to 6th and 7th commandment. Because Jesus said, you just need like the seeds of those things in you. You've hated somebody in your heart. If you've thought about somebody the way commandment 7 talks about, too late, you're done dealing. He adds some more. So, uh, do not steal. You want to get to heaven based on your own goodness? Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Have you ever not paid back fully what you should have paid back? Have you ever taken something home from work that the, uh, you know, the, 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 the business paid for? Do not, have you ever told a lie? How about this one? Honor your father and mother. Have you, did you ever dishonor your father or mother? Should I start asking parents while their kids are here right now? Could we do that? And then have you always loved your neighbor the same way you love yourself? Do you look out for other people as much as you look out for number one? Always. Verse 20 is the most interesting verse in this passage. To me. Because in verse 20, the young man says to Jesus, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws. What still do I lack? Here's the first thing I find interesting about this is this guy actually thinks he's kept all those. That's amazing. He's wrong, but I think he believes that. And in none of the gospels do we see anybody stepping out of the crowd like, um, wait a minute. I have evidence to the contrary. I think this guy really believes he's the most moral guy in town. And you know what? He, he might be. Somebody is. Everybody doesn't sin the same number of sins. What if he is? He might be the best dude in that whole town. But that's not the part I find most interesting. Here's a guy who thinks he can be good enough to get to heaven. He just wants to know how. Jesus gives him a list of behavioral requirements that he actually believes he has kept. But then he says this, what do I still lack? I'm the best guy in this whole town and they all know it. But somewhere in my heart, I know there's still something that I'm lacking. Like I can feel that I'm in trouble before God. 
And I don't think I can be any better than I've already been. There's insight there. Because he does lack something. I know what he lacks. Do you know what he lacks? He lacks first an understanding that he can't be good enough. He needs to grasp his own childlikeness. He needs to understand his status where it counts before God is one of empty, broken sinfulness. He's lost. And then he needs someone else to stand in his place and take the punishment his sins deserve. What he lacks is Jesus and faith in Jesus. That's what he lacks. But he doesn't know. And what Jesus says to him next that makes him leave, what usually gets the focus is what Jesus asks him to do, but to give away all of his, his money. But don't miss, don't, don't focus so hard on what Jesus asked this guy to give away that you miss the opportunity Jesus gave this guy. Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect or complete, if you want to know what you lack, that's the right question, by the way. What do I lack? That's the right question before Jesus. Not, must, not what must I do, because there's nothing you can do. But what do I lack? There's something to hang on to. Because if I lack a saving faith in Jesus Christ, I lack it all. So say, you want to figure out what you lack, Jesus says? Go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. There's the same invitation all of the disciples got. Opiso mu, you can join the club. But, you know, since ours is an itinerant ministry, and we're homeless, and we depend on God to take care of us, I want you, before, I want you to sell everything you own, give it all to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, is that a requirement for heaven? Is that the thing he must do? What must I do to go to heaven? Is this the thing he has to do? Give up all of his? No, it's not. I can prove that to you by the end of the passage. Just hang on there. What Jesus is doing is not giving this guy the one thing he has to do. He's showing him, he's answering his second question, what do I lack? You lack Jesus. You know why you lack me? You know why you won't follow me? Because there's something between you and me that's your real God that you won't let go of. If we glance back up at the list of commandments that Jesus went through, it was up in uh, verses, what, 18, 19, 20. I told you that Jesus listed off commandments 5 through 10, but he really didn't. He stopped short. He left one out. You know which one he left out? Do not murder. That's seven. Do not commit adultery. That's eight. Steal is nine. Excuse me. Seven. Six. Seven. Eight. Nine. Honor your father and mother is five. And then there's another one that goes right here. You know what it is? Thou shalt not covet. You know what coveting is? Coveting is just where I want what I don't have in a way that I feel like my joy, my happiness is not going to be complete unless I have that. And that ain't Jesus. You know what? 
Even if that's the only sin this guy had ever sinned, that would be enough. And Jesus knows coveting is a tricky one. Coveting is the one that Paul said, well, I wouldn't even have known that was a sin if God didn't tell us in the law. Jesus knows this guy won't really follow him. He won't really pursue Jesus because he's too busy pursuing other things in this world that give him his purpose, his identity, his status. And don't get too much comfort. I, I do want you to know you do not have to give away all of your possessions to go to heaven, but don't take too much comfort in that. Because the people who tend to get the most comfort from that are people to whom Jesus would make the same request. Oftentimes. Warren Wearsby used to say, it is good to have the things money can buy as long as you don't lose the things money can't buy. And he used to say, it's good to possess wealth as long as wealth doesn't possess you. That's where this guy is. And Jesus, he will not ask you, I don't think, to sell all your possessions and give all the money to the poor. But he will often ask us to give up, to let go of that which keeps us from him. That which is a barrier between me walking with him. Wealth is a is a common one of those. And he does want us to live open-handedly. So this guy, we're told he, he walks away sad. And by the way, if your English version just says he walks away sad, it doesn't go far enough. Uh, the Greek word there, he, he walks away like emotionally torn up. He's grieving why? Because he knows there's something he still lacks. And even though Jesus has said, you can come follow me, I'm what you lack. He says, but give away all that other stuff, then come follow me. He leaves knowing I still lack now what I lacked before. And somehow he knows I'm walking away from what I lack. But he can't pull the trigger. Because he can't give away his identity for a new one. He can't follow Jesus into the next world if it means letting go of what he's holding on to in this world. So he walks away and he's all torn up. And the disciples can't believe what they've just heard. They're shocked. So in verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to be straight with you guys. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. That is scary stuff. You know why? Because we're all rich. I know you don't think you're rich. Because we, when we think of rich people, we always compare ourselves to people who have more than we do. And we picture, you know, the rich is like Scrooge McDuck. You remember Scrooge McDuck? 
where he would just like swim in the, in the, the pool of, of gold coins and jewels. Like that's, that's rich. Like I'm not rich. But if you compare yourself to the overwhelming majority of every human who's ever walked on this planet, if you have walls in your house and a solid roof and the floors are covered and you have indoor plumbing and you drove here in a car, man, you are rolling. You are rich. And you know what Jesus just said? It's hard to get somebody like you into heaven. Wait a minute. No, he didn't. He said it's impossible. Is it possible to fit a camel through the eye of a needle? I can't even fit a thread through the eye of a needle. And just, I tried to shove our house cat through the eye of a needle this morning. I couldn't even do that. Then she bit me. Now, Jesus just said, it's, it's, that's not possible, correct? Jesus just said, it's impossible to get rich folks like us into heaven. And why would he say a thing like that? You know that the gospel has always had better traction amongst the down and out, the poor, the needy, the miserable, the sick. Always. And the gospel has always had very little traction comparatively amongst the the rich and the jet setters and the powerful and the people with status. Why is that? It's one of the criticisms of the Brian Fellowship of Churches has been working in India for a decade or so. And one of the criticisms from the Indian leadership for movements like that is, oh, these Christians, they come over here and the only people that ever sign up are the dirt, poorest, lowest folks. Yep. It's the way it works. Why? Because of what Jesus just taught already today by calling those children to himself. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people who understand they have no status. They have nothing going for them where it counts before God. And it's a lot easier to understand that when it's true about the rest of my life also. I have to understand I don't have what it takes for real joy and real happiness before I will accept a Savior. The, uh, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole lesson. If we went around the room and I started asking those of you who are redeemed to tell a story about when you came, when you turned to Christ, you know what we would hear over and over and over? Different versions of rock bottom. Or if I asked, when did you get serious about following the Lord? You know what you, I would hear over and over and over? Different versions of rock bottom. When I finally figure out, I need saved. I need help. I can't get what I need. Until we understand our need, we don't reach out for a Savior. And when we are, man, when things are awesome and when this world has given me all that I can can suck out of it, it's very hard for someone like that to cry out to be saved when they feel like they can get everything they need from the world. 
Now, there's comfort in this scary passage, too. The disciples, they can't believe Jesus just let the rich young ruler walk. Like, if God doesn't love that guy, who does he love? And Jesus, if you don't want that guy on our team, who do you want on our team? And rich people can't go to heaven. What? Isn't that who God loves? Obviously, look how blessed they are. But Jesus just said, no, no, it's hard to get rich folks into heaven. It's impossible. And who can be saved? Here's the comforting part. Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible for people. But for God, all things are possible. I don't care if you're rich, poor, short, tall, popular, unpopular, powerful, or marginalized. When the God of the universe comes for you, you're going to be saved. Because with God, all things are possible. And at this point in the story, something dawns on Peter. I love this. So Peter's watched. Jesus just told the rich young ruler, give away everything and come follow me. And he goes away tore up because he, he won't do it. Then something dawns on Peter. Peter's like, oh, hey, wait a second. I think we've done what he asked the rich young ruler to do. Peter says, behold, or look, or check this out, Lord. We have left everything to follow you. What, there, will there, what then where there, will there be for us? I didn't say that very well, but you get the idea. Jesus goes, oh, wait a minute. Or Peter goes, wait a minute. I had a fishing business and a house and a wife and a mother-in-law. And we, we left all that stuff, and here we are headed toward Jerusalem, and we left all that stuff. It just dawned on me. I just thought about that. We did what you asked that guy to do. Now, I told you I would prove to you that you don't have to sell everything and give the money to the poor to go to heaven. Because Peter didn't. He left that stuff, but he didn't sell it. He still has boats. They used to tootle back and forth across the Sea of Galilee in Peter's boats. They stayed in Peter's house. He didn't sell his house. He didn't sell his mother-in-law either. Probably wanted to a time or two, but he didn't. So Peter says, well, we've done that. What's, what's in this for us? And, and Jesus just makes very clear. I'm going to make that part very short. You cannot give away something for Jesus in this world that, that won't, you won't be worth it someday. Jesus says, following me, you live open-handed, Whatever you give up in this world, you give up something that's temporary for something that's eternal. That's a pretty good deal. It's a great deal. What we call sacrifices oftentimes aren't sacrifices. They're guaranteed investments. And Peter's a great example of something that's supposed to happen to you and me. When Jesus came to Peter and called Peter, same words that the, that the rich young ruler got, follow me. And Peter throws his nets over his shoulder and gets out of that boat and starts following Jesus. His old life wasn't his life anymore. He used to live for a fishing business and I don't know what all he lived for. But he left all that stuff behind without even realizing it. It just dawns on him today. Right? When, 
When we start to follow Jesus, when we understand I'm penniless and broken and I have no status before God, his opinion's the only one that matters. I need Jesus and I start to follow him. All the other stuff I used to use to make me impressive and superior and comfortable and have joy and all that other stuff. Like the old songwriter said, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus didn't shake his finger at Peter and say, if you don't give away this fishing business, you're not going to heaven. He just said, you start following me and you'll forget you even had a fishing business. Because what starts to happen when I realize my status before the God of the universe is just so puny and worthless and I start to realize everything I have is really his anyway, Think about this. How silly, how silly is it that we take a whole bunch of stuff that is God's, we stack it up around ourselves so that other people get impressed that we have collected more of God's stuff than they have. You think about it that way, doesn't that seem silly? You know what a legacy kid is? Right? Like John D. Rockefeller, I don't know who his son was, but that dude was born rich right? Sam Walton, Walmart guy. Like, I remember his four kids were four of the top 10 wealthiest people in the world just because their dad was Sam Walton. I imagine the people around them were kind of like, what'd you do? What'd you do to get all that, right? You're born on third base and swear you hit a triple, right? It's kind of annoying. Listen, we're all that. We are all that. If all this stuff is our daddy's stuff, then the question becomes less, how much of this can I collect for me so that you think I have more than you and maybe I can run around with these people? It becomes less about that and more about, daddy, what do you want me to do with your stuff? And these two stories, they work together to teach that. Who did Jesus accept? The ones who knew they had no status. Who did Jesus reject? The one who thought he had status. You see the lesson there? Jesus doesn't assess people the way the world assesses people. How could you possibly impress the one who spoke the universe into existence? By what kind of car you drive? The kingdom belongs to those who no longer assess things the way the world assesses things either. And it's not that Jesus wants everybody to give away everything they have. His ministry was funded by people with money. I don't have time to show you, but it's in there. Lazarus's sisters, they were wealthy. They funded his ministry. But when we begin to value Jesus above all else and recognize all we have is his, we realize our status comes from the one who gave us the status of his son. Things can begin to change. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to lower himself from the status 
of the throne of the universe to come live like a, like a mere man and to die the death we deserved. And you give us the same invitation to follow you. But Lord, we won't really follow you when we're busy trying to make a status out of this world. So God, convict us where we need convicting. Show us what we need to let go of, give up, what is a barrier between us and you that we might come before, understand that the only status that matters is our status before you and the only status that will do us a bit of good is the status that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And God, may you begin to change us in ways where we could look back like Peter and say, wow, I used to live for stuff that I've let go of now. Glorify yourself in us that way, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our closing song.